I learned from the early part of my life that education was not something that was given to you. It was something you had to fight for. You had to acquire education. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, growing up in a small Turkish village with a one-room schoolhouse, this week's guest had limited educational opportunities. That is, until his family got a computer. Now fueled by his dreams to compete internationally in chess and mathematics, this guest used the internet to access learning resources and connect with people all over the world. And with the help of these communities, he earned a silver medal in the International Math Olympiad. Now after online learning changed his life, he decided to partner with some co-founders and create a tool that would make quality education more accessible and improve the lives of everyone in the world through learning. Aaron Bali is the co-founder and chairman of Udemy.com, an online learning and teaching marketplace with over 55,000 courses and 15 million students. He saw that the future of learning was democratized online, and then he pioneered that future. In our constantly changing world, you cannot expect to go to college, learn everything that you need to know, and then be done with learning for the rest of your life. As Aaron shared with us, you have to make learning a continuous part of your journey. The most important skill for succeeding in today's world is learning how to learn by yourself. The ability to identify a personal gap in knowledge, then find that instruction and implement what you learn is a game changer. And you can go to the show notes and watch the TED Talk that Aaron gave specifically describing this important message. Plus, with resources like Udemy, education is more accessible than ever before. Potential entrepreneurs and curious learners can access world-class education for cheap and sometimes even free and find valuable mentors in, say, things like podcasts. Now, Aaron is looking to pioneer the future of healthcare in his next career, in his next journey, since stepping down as CEO from Udemy and assuming the chairman position. He founded a new company called Carbon Health, which aims to create the world's largest connected healthcare network. Carbon Health is an app that integrates with pharmacies, labs, insurance providers, and specialists to allow you to access your treatment plans, manage prescriptions, see lab results, schedule appointments, and much more all through this one app. Now, Carbon is currently available only in the Bay Area, and they will hope to expand throughout the U.S. to become the world's, quote, largest hospital in the, way, in the same way that Udemy is the world's largest school. So there is a tremendous amount that we can learn from this week's guest. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, prepare to be inspired, prepare to take action, brace for impact. 
Aaron Bali, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you today and, and hear more about your story and share it with the world. Hey, thanks for having, having me here. So I'm, I'm really excited to share my story. So my name is Aaron Bali, and I am the I was the founder and CEO of uh, Udemy. Right now, I'm the chairman there. And then I am the founder and CEO of a new company I started recently called Carbon Health. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, I grew up in Turkey and came here like nine years ago to start Udemy. So it's, yeah. been, it's been a quite a journey. Quite a journey, yeah. So what was it like growing up in Turkey? What did you want mm -hmm. to be? What did you dream about being when you were a little kid? Mm -hmm. And what was your what was your family like? Sure. So. I have probably a background which is different than most other Turkish entrepreneurs here. So I was born in a very small village in southeast part of Turkey. So it's from the very rural kind of poor areas. And growing up like in our primary, in primary school, there was only one teacher for five different grades. Oh, wow. She would just like rotate between uh, classes. She would give, give you some speaking, like reading assignment and switch to the, the next class because it was a part of the country that most other teachers did not want to uh, work at. So they were really having a hard time finding teachers there. So because of that, I was always like, I, I learned from the early part of my life that education was not something that was given to you. It was something you had to fight for. You had mm. to acquire education. Mm. Um, and the interesting thing about this village was that even though it was so hard and it was like, it was a 7,000 feet high mountain snows most of the time of the year and there were kids which would have to walk by themselves in the middle of the snow like four or five miles every day and they would still not miss a single day of the school so i think the wow. kind of lack of access also did not mean lack of motivation it was if anything that like people were far more like hungry to get anything that they wanted so i think that the early like observing that like the place i grew up like really changed my perspective about a lot of things but just back to me, I was this very ambitious kid. So I don't know where that, where that ambition came from because it was <laughs> not like you were expected to do something. Yeah. This was like a farming village, right? So you would, right. you would be expected to just grow your apricot trees and mm -hmm. uh, maybe make a family. That, that's what, mm -hmm. that's, that was the kind of expected outcome. But I was really good at chess in the early years. I learned it at, when I was four years old. My father taught me how to play chess and very quickly I became like the best chess player in all that, like the city and all the environment. Um, and then growing up, I was also, I started also getting really interested in mathematics, but, the, but there was really not much I could, I could do about it. Mm -hmm. This kind of changed when my older sister got admitted to college. So, and she, my parents bought a computer for her. Mm. Um, so, and during the summer I had the computer and we got ex internet access for a couple months. It was very expensive back then. Like I, I, I I'm I really, imagine, yeah. I'm really kind of grateful that my like parents probably spent like a third of their income on the internet connection at that, that time. Oh my god, pretty expensive. So I don't. But I started finding like I started first playing online chess and realized that there was this, all these other people that I would I could play chess with, which are much better players than me. And I realized like internet was would completely change how I could improve my chess skills. But then after that, I started also finding a lot of math resources and right. I started self-teaching myself more high-level mathematics. And I ended up winning gold medal in Turkish National Metal Olympiads and silver medal in International Metal Olympiads, pretty much all like self-taught from the internet. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> and I'm not like just saying this just to brag, uh, even though I'm maybe bragging a little bit, but, but the important thing for me was that internet was not creating 
education equality, but it was it was not you could not consider like just equal chances, but it would at least give a chance and opportunity for people who are self motivated. Right. But it was not having internet versus having internet was a massive difference for me. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I so so from the early days I was always thinking that people's primary learning destination would be like web. Uh-huh. And I, I, I continued that belief in college. I probably did not attend any school, any classes. I might have gone, gone to maybe 60 hours of class in four years. Oh, wow. So, but like I was able to learn a lot better online. So I just didn't even understand why people would go to yeah. classes, right? So, Are you familiar with um, Carol Dweck's work from Stanford? Uh, uh, she wrote a book called Mindset. It's all about growth mindset. Are yeah. you familiar with I'm that? Not, I'm not familiar with her. So it's inter- are you familiar with the concept of yes. fixed mindset versus growth mindset? Yep. So I'm just listening to your story and mm-hmm. I'm listening and I'm imagining yourself as a kid mm-hmm. and I'm imagining your peers mm-hmm. um, and just the adversity mm-hmm. that they had to face. And I say, I say adversity mm-hmm. because I didn't have to experience it, right? Mm-hmm. So like, Walking to walking in the snow to school five miles every day mm-hmm. was just a normal thing mm-hmm. for you and and for some of your peers yeah. in Turkey. For me, it would be like like my orientation of experience and understanding is mm-hmm. completely foreign, to, right? Yep. So for me, it seems like adversity, but for other people, it's just it's just reality. every day, just reality. They don't yeah. even think about it. But when they get to a place. Mm-hmm where there is efficiency, yep. they're able to accelerate and be more productive because mm-hmm. they've already had to deal with all of this stuff mm-hmm. beforehand. Is that an yes. experience that you've had? No, that's, that's exactly the experience that I was having because it, in, when I was competing in Olympias, like my other peers that I was competing against, where they were coming from top colleges, top like private schools. They had like two doors teachers training this for this event from their early childhood. And what was the event again? Uh, in the math Olympiads. Oh, math Olympiads. Okay. So versus yeah. I had like pretty much no preparation. I yeah. like did not even have any idea about questions would come up. Mm-hmm. But then I think once I passed the first uh, stage and then I started like, getting into the same camps that they were getting into because the government was running them at that mm-hmm. point. And then I was able to catch up very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, this is a reality. Like a lot of people don't start in the same privileges with other people mm-hmm. and that's like a, a big problem we should like try to fix but then if there are some opportunities to catch up the people who are in this advantage can actually would actually uh, benefit from advantages far more than other people when did you begin to become aware of the uh, that there was an entrepreneurial culture what was yep. there in the cities in turkey was there an entrepreneurial culture or was it something that you saw outside and then it just drew you out so yeah let me actually yeah uh, I, I know i remember exactly when i started realizing that the, about an, the option of being an entrepreneur so it was much later in my life so i was i grew up in this small city and then i went to ankara the capital of turkey for college and i started studying computer science and mathematics and then i, I even built like some applications in the first year of college which became pretty popular among students I built like an online MP3, online a music player in mm. 2001. Mm. Like it was a web-based player, which was far earlier than any other web-based on mm. music uh, applications. 
But I like doing building things like that. I just like producing, but I had no idea that this could be businesses. Mm-hmm. I think maybe after I graduated in 2005, 2006, I started seeing companies like uh, YouTube coming out and Blogger. That's when I realized these are actually serious companies. They're not just somebody's projects. Right. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's like, that was a, like almost like a awakening, like after I graduated. Yeah. But I was interested in like entrepreneurial things. But I thought I would maybe start an agency and like build software for other people. Right. But I did not know about like building a product. And so, and, what inspired you? Obviously, there's yeah. a there's a nexus between your experience growing mm-hmm. up in the small village and mm-hmm. Udemy. Yep. So, when did you decide? Okay, I'm going to take this what I'm seeing on the on the web via mm-hmm. YouTube and Blogger. Yes. And I'm going to create a learning platform. Yes. Like, what What was the leap? Sure. So we. Initially got contract, we had started a small company. So I had last year in college, I already started a company. As I said, it was not meant to be a startup. We were not aware of that option, but we were just building software for other companies. And then we were contracted to build a live classroom application for a local research center. Um, And we built it, we just got some money from them. But then I started thinking, okay, like then I started observing like YouTubes and bloggers of the world. And I was say, thinking they disrupted, they democratize putting videos online. They democratize publishing. Um, and I was thinking like, just, we could continue to sell the software. But I, was, I said, like, what if we did not sell the software anymore? Mm-hmm. And we just make it free for anybody who wants to teach online, just like YouTube and bloggers there. So that anybody who wants, who has something to share, some knowledge to share, can share it. And I was thinking um, this could become very successful because, because I truly believed there were hundreds of millions of people around the world which were hungry for learning, and they did not have the physical, like um, the opportunities to physically like learn mm-hmm. the things that they want to learn. Mm-hmm. If you were born in my hometown and you want to learn iOS programming, there would be pretty much no way to do that, right? There would, there would not be even a, a Turkish book about it. So I thought like there was an opportunity there. And the biggest kind of um, counter-argument to that opportunity was that people would only take courses if there's a diploma attached to that. That was the common belief. That was why it was not, we were not really sure that this is a good idea because every investor, is there, every investor we talked to, everybody in the market said people only learn because they get paid for it. They get the certification. They get a diploma. Mm-hmm. There's no learning outside those. Mm-hmm. There's no education. It's the, it's the whole carrot stick philosophy. Exactly. Like they, and it was not some people's opinion. It was the kind of common sense at the time. It was right. like what everybody believed. Right. So, but we thought, but we were thinking, what if like there are some things that you want to learn? And we thought this would be a small business. We did not expect it to be anyway right. in the size it is. <laughs> but we thought maybe there are a couple, maybe there's, there are, there's, one million people in the world which wants to spend their time learning instead of like playing games. And how many like people are using U- Udemy now? Uh, we already have, I think, 20, more than 25 million students and yeah. we'll be hundreds of millions of students. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. So you started Udemy in Turkey, mm-hmm. but you decided that it wasn't going to work there. Yes. And so you end up moving to the U.S., specifically the Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And... You, you, you had some traction before you came to the U.S. No, right? actually, we did, did not have uh, no? that much traction. Okay. Like, yeah, so we launched the company in Turkey, product in Turkey, as a live education platform. So it was the same democratized platform, but it was for live classes. Um, and 
we launched them very, very quickly. We realized it was not going to work. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of problems. First of all, Turkey did not have enough of these influence, influencers that we needed to like kickstart this platform. And then at the time to kind of fund the company, it, like I was working at nights for Silicon Valley companies. Mm-hmm. So the, I was getting a good like American salary and then that was enough to like fund the company in Turkey. Yeah. Um, so I kind of started seeing like how things were different here. And I started going back and forth to Silicon Valley, uh, for a couple months, uh, each time. And I realized like Silicon Valley had the density of the influencer we needed, influencers that we needed to, to kickstart this platform. Mm. Uh, secondly, we realized like live education was not the best product because you needed somebody who wants to teach, teach a subject and students who want to learn their sub- subject and they have to be on the site at the same time. Right. which is almost impossible to do when you're small. So we decided to convert it to an on-demand learning platform so people could create courses and students could take them anytime they want. Mm-hmm. And we also realized that was really helping us extend the availability of this because motivated kids would actually learn by themselves. They did not need as much kind of one-on-one coaching. And the price point we could sell online courses, on-demand courses was significantly lower than live courses because mm-hmm. when you are doing live courses, it's compared to the price of tutoring, so which is a lot higher than mm-hmm. like the $10, $20 courses that people are buying on mm-hmm. Udemy right now. So, yeah, so we decided it was not going to work, shut down the company in Turkey, moved over to Silicon Valley, so, but we needed visa, so it took us maybe three years to get up to our feet in Silicon Valley. Oh, wow. Just to get our H1 visas, like I got lost lottery, so oh my gosh. Like I was traveling back and forth, so it was a pretty hard migration process. Right. And then... My co-founder and couple of, couple of our engineers, like they also got migrated to work for other companies so that we could just reunite here. Okay. So my co-founder was like visa was uh, rejected, so he had to go back to Turkey. So it was like a pretty daunting process, but eventually we like came together again. Uh, we started we pro- relaunched the product as an on-demand platform in 2010. Okay. And then we started getting some traction. And like initially fundraising was super hard because we were just some few immigrant entrepreneurs who did not know anybody, who did not even speak the language that well. So yeah. it was not easy in the beginning, but once we got more traction, then we raised a million dollars, like seed round. And after that, we were all able to go full-time. So before that, mm-hmm. because of the visa restrictions, we were not able to work full-time on, on Udemy. So we were just working on Udemy at nights. Once we raised the first round, then we were able to sponsor our own visas and legally work in our own companies. But you were already, even during that three-year period, yeah. you were already basically ready to, to, to hit the ground running. Like, I mean, and, yes. After a short, like, yeah. I mean, just to be very clear, right? So there was a moment where we gave up. There were maybe two or three times where we gave up on this. We oh, said, wow, okay. This is not going to work. We already shut down the company in Turkey. And um, we tried to raise money, it did not work. So we eventually realized, okay, we needed money for to make this work. And uh, we gave up a couple of times and then we just would keep taking and picking it back up. Mm-hmm. And I think after a year, I started working on Udemy again at NICE with my like other co-founders. So we had just built the on-demand version of the platform. Um, and, and we launched the site actually before our visas were approved. So we got traction and then we were able to get our visas. Mm-hmm. So, we, so in those three years, like maybe one at this one year of that, or maybe two years of that, we were already working on it. And did you like? I'm I'm not a technical person. Mm-hmm. Like I don't I don't build or develop anything. But I'm becoming like more familiar with the the language. Mm-hmm. And so there's Amazon Web Services, right? Mm-hmm. Which 
most everybody that's developing mm-hmm. something builds on today. Yes. But you guys built this product way before that even existed, right? Yes. I think it was just before Amazon came out. I remember pretty well because we had built so much infrastructure for like hosting videos and delivering streaming, things like that. We would do, have to do most of this like ourselves with our own servers. And then as all these third-party services came out, we just replaced our infrastructure with the existing infrastructure. Right. So there was a moment where we switched from uh, our service to like Amazon service. There we replaced our file management system to like S3. We replaced our video streaming te- technology to CloudFront. And right. we started using Amazon's transcoders. It was not just Amazon. There were other services that came out too. Uh-huh. So video players and stuff like that. So we had to build so much infrastructure that eventually we... we replace them with the existing infrastructure. So that really uh, reduced the complexity of running the company. Right. And that probably really accelerated things and, and made, made mm-hmm. the company just run that much more efficiently. Exactly. We only had to focus on the things that were, which were essential to us, like right. the learning platform, the right. post-creation platform. Yeah. But we did not have to worry about like encoding videos. Right. And what, so there's something to be said. There's a really valuable lesson, I think, mm-hmm. that's there for every entrepreneur, whether you're building a website or mm-hmm. Um, whatever widget you're building that you need to be able to adapt. And even though you've put in all of these blood, sweat, tears, hours and developing your own infrastructure mm-hmm. to be able to, uh, you know, step into another infrastructure or platform uh, that's that somebody else built mm-hmm. may free you up to perform on your massive value proposition, which you, which you yep. want to focus on in the first place. Exactly. I think the focus part is pretty obvious to most entrepreneurs right now. So when there are existing solutions, most people would prefer using them instead of building everything from scratch. But I think the, the, the tougher thing for us was that we had already spent the time uh, into building something. And often people don't like, are less likely to, to make the decision if it means change. Right. I think it's not just in technology choices. It's a more general, like, fallacy that most people have, right? Mm-hmm. So the way I make decisions is I say, if you did not have this platform today, would we build that? Mm-hmm. If the answer is no, then we should also get rid of the platform we already built. Right. Right. So even when people think about jobs, for example, right? So like they think, they always think about like who loses their jobs or like which new jobs are created. They always think about a differential, right? Mm-hmm. But when you think about the, how you run the country, you should say, if the, the job did not have to exist today, Mm-hmm. Would we make a job for that? Right. Right. For example, most people can get water for in their pipes. For like all, everybody in California gets free water in their houses. Right. Like, there's no job like to like pass it, that water. And in Turkey, for example, the, the drinking water is not tap water is not drinkable most in most places. So you have to buy water, and somebody delivers to you. Right. right? So there are some jobs that exist in Turkey for delivering clean water to people. Right. So I mean, in the US, you should think like. Should we, for example, ban the tap water so that there we create jobs to bring it to like every right. household? So yeah. the answer will be no for most people, right? right. So then this, this is the thought you have to make. You just if this not existed today, uh, if you had both options, and like would you make the decision? If the answer right. is yes, usually the right answer is yes, even if you have to make a change. Right, because you're looking for efficiency. Yep. You know, I mean, if Turkey had the option right now of not having water delivered. They would, <laughs> yeah. If we had clean, drinkable water, like tap water, yeah. like we would not have want to create this job, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah. we would just much rather give can like, affordable clean water to air the whole population. Yeah. 
I think that's the, that's the mindset you have to have. So if somebody wanted to build a learning platform, mm-hmm. like, like a, something similar to Udemy today, what would they do? What, would, what steps would they take? What, what kind of... Yep. So it would be a lot easier to build a kind of basic infrastructure for them because all these third-party solutions exist. But then the, the challenge they will have is that there are already companies who now dominated significant parts of the market. So you mm-hmm. can, they cannot just do what we did like five right. years ago yeah, and become yeah, successful. Sure. Right? I, yeah. think, I think what you want to do is uh, when you are disrupting any company, even my own company like Udemy, right? if you want to disrupt Udemy, the way to look at it is um, what other learning is there that Udemy is not the best platform for? Hmm. Right? Hmm. Why would people not use it? Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, and then you find a niche there and then you build an amazing, like very specialized product for that niche. Um, and then you just, that's how you kind of build a viable product against yeah. competitors. Right. Just, just like when Facebook came out, like they realized that college students were not using uh, Friendster or MySpace. So they built it really like specifically for college students. Mm-hmm. And then Snapchat became popular because high school students were really sick of Facebook because, because their parents were there. Yeah. So like that's, I mean, who is not using the current products is usually the best the best targets to go mm-hmm. to. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't, hadn't, hadn't thought about that, but who's not using the current product? And why is, are they not using it? And why are they it, not right? using it? Yeah, that's a good question. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. You know, I, I watched this TED video that you, uh, I watched a video that you did of a TED talk on mm-hmm. TED, TEDx Bay Area. And the title of your talk was about the most important skill mm-hmm. that, that we, could, we should all learn. So I'd love for you to elaborate on mm-hmm. if you could teach anybody mm-hmm. one skill, what would that skill be? So yeah, as I t- said in my TED talk, probably five years ago, uh, the most important skill is learning how to learn by yourself. Mm-hmm. So, like, because the things that we'll need to know to adapt the ch- like the quickly changing world is not going to be static. You cannot expect to go to college, learn everything that you need to know, and then be done with the, with learning for the rest of your life. You have mm-hmm. to make learning a continuous part of your life. Mm-hmm. So, and for that to happen, you have to, as I said, you cannot go to school every time. You need to learn new skills. You you should think about. Okay, I need to do this type of marketing. Just start searching online. You might find some online courses, some maybe communities, some meetups, but then you just figure that out up yourself. And once you learn a couple of things and you realize it's a very repeatable skill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so then like if I have to do rocket science, I feel like I could just learn rocket science online. Yeah. So I'm like <laughs> only you though. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think like everybody could do like I mean Elon Musk has learned about like space and like a lot of different sure. things that he has no idea about. I mean he studied physics and economics, if I'm not wrong, right? So yeah. it's just like these are learnable. Like there are books, there are online courses, yeah. communities, yeah. people that you can meet. Yeah. Uh like most I think most of the time you don't need like schools. Schools are really good at 
making sure people remain motivated. Right. So because otherwise you people sometimes feel like they want to give up. And right. if you pay for a school, then you have to finish it. That's that's like where it's, it's really helpful. Right. Workshops are like they are similar. Mm-hmm. They're good for motiv- like keeping the motivation up. But in terms of the pure content, uh, you don't really need most of those. What's interesting is is you know I went to college here and mm-hmm. the, the traditional um, you know format four years all that stuff. Got a degree. My full time gig is I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm a, I'm a wealth manager. That's what I do mm-hmm. full time. My degree is not in that. I did I ended up going to school, mm-hmm. and now I'm doing something that it's not directly related to my degree. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for 13 years. The other interesting thing though is I graduated. And I had some friends that were in the engineering school at that time, mm-hmm. and they were looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. And this was in 2005, 2004. And they were told that everything they had learned the previous three years was now obsolete. Right? Yes. And so I'm not an engineer, but I'm thinking to myself, like just in hindsight over the last you know, several years, that the, the rate of change... Mm-hmm and growth mm-hmm. in technology and in the marketplace mm-hmm. has been so, so rapid that everybody's mm-hmm. skills, if you have not been constantly learning, yes. have diminished, Yes, which is a really scary thing because then the value, quote unquote, that you represent mm-hmm. to the marketplace has also gone down. Yes. And that is, I, I launched in, to, in 2015, I, that's when I started this podcast. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, gosh, I need to, I need to learn from people. You know, stay up to date, and I yeah, need to learn what relevant, people. Yeah. I need to remain relevant. I need to learn what people are doing. Mm-hmm. I need to learn how they're, what they're building, and why it's great, and how they tapped their potential. Mm-hmm. This podcast's mission and why it's called the Impact Entrepreneur Show mm-hmm. has nothing to do with like impact investing or anything like that. It's all about having an encounter with your potential mm-hmm. and your purpose. Mm-hmm. And then I call that an impact moment. Mm-hmm. And that's where your life changes. Mm-hmm. Right. And you obviously had um, a tremendous amount of impact moments over your life that have mm-hmm. let, brought you to this point. And you build this great company, mm-hmm. um, you to me. And then in 2004, uh, mm-hmm. 2014, rather, mm-hmm. you decided and your, your board, fellow board members decided that it was time for for a transition to leadership, perhaps yeah. I assume to take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. But what was that like stepping down as mm-hmm. CEO? Yep. You know, now you're chairman, founder, mm-hmm. still obviously very involved, but it must have been, I, I would assume, maybe mm-hmm. I'm totally wrong, emotionally, yeah. like, and it must have been an emotional thing handing over like the reins, so sure. to speak. Of course. Yeah. Oh, and, I, and I want to actually speak very transparently about this, right? Because most of the time when there is a leadership change, it's always a sugar coda. It's always a story about how you want to spend more time with your family. So, um, and I think that because like people don't realize the real stories, like they get like more emotionally upset when a like, situation like this happens. So, um, I think before we kind of made the transition, at one point I realized we needed an CEO. I actually myself realized, and the mistake I had done was that I was really focused on product and technology side, mm-hmm. right? And I made the mistake of, in terms of running the company, I really single hand, I just, I put maybe 70, 80% of my time, like thinking into that, only that area. And at one point, it hit me that medium success was not going to come from just engineering and product. It was mostly going to come from 
building a good community of instructors, like marketing, growth, helping people. So it was not a primarily technology challenge. And this is different for different companies. If you are, for example, Tesla, like the only thing that matters is how good your cars are. I mean, there are other things that matter, but how good your car is, like 90% of the the business. And if you're Apple, how good your products are, are, 90% of your success criteria. But at UDM, I realized the success criteria was wider than what I was at that point focused on. So I I was thinking like it was time to uh, make a change. I was like looking for somebody potentially. Uh, and then our board had, but then like, independent, they also had the same comment. They, they maybe said, maybe I should work on just the product side and technology. I should be the chief product officer mm-hmm. and we should bring another uh, CEO. So and those board members at the time, we still have a very good relationship with them. Actually, right. one of them is now the board member in my new company. Oh, okay. So that's the thing. Like, I, I think it, it is sometimes, I mean, I did not enjoy the news at the time when it was especially brought to me by somebody else. But I was also thinking about the same thing. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was still an emotional time. And I decided to step down because I thought, like, if, you, if you're the CEO and then I was still in the company, it would be a, like a two-headed mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. I, that was not going to work that well. So I decided to, like, step down my, kind of reduce most of my roles. I became more of a resource for the company. Mm-hmm. So people would, like, put appointments on my calendar to, like, get input from me about something, but I would not like ask people, anybody to anything. So, right. and that was, I think the right decision. Like you want a pretty clear leadership. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then we also now got like, even like our third CEO. Right. Meanwhile, the company is growing super fast, by the way. Like I think you yeah. didn't probably is one of the rare companies which had three different CEOs while the company still was growing like two, three X every yeah. year. Right. So and I had no that, idea that it's, yeah. that it's still private. I thought it was, yeah. for some reason I thought it was, it had, it, it we're not public yeah. yet, but it's just still private, but we are still growing extremely fast. And we're growing super fast when I like when we made the transition. It was just like sometimes you make this you have to make decisions without being like emotional about it. Right. right? So then I actually realized it was the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started carbon health. I had, was really actually part of the reason I stepped on more was I was really getting ambitious and excited about the carbon health opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that too, because Mm-hmm. That I, I was like, wait, he he start he democratized mm-hmm. education and learning mm-hmm. through Udemy, mm-hmm. and now he starts uh, Carbon Health, two completely seemingly unrelated. Yes, I'm like, what is the background there? I mean, like, mm-hmm. why why that was? There's got to be some sort of a personal story behind. Sure. So um, yeah, I mean, there, there are two things that made me excited about Carbon Health. One is so. Four, roughly four years ago, I was still the CEO of Udemy, and my mom is back in Turkey, so she, uh, she went to the doctor with some basic chest pain and back pain, and then in a month, she had a full body stroke. Mm-hmm. She could start with her like, stomach area, but then like, slowly her arms, like, even fingers. So, and then I had to kind of take maybe three, several months off my work to, um, to go take her to doctors, and my sister's a doctor, so it was, that was very helpful. So, and her, she would actually take her to different doctors and with like maybe 1,500 pages of documents and several DVDs with MRI, CT scans to find out what was happening because nobody could diagnose what was happening. And meanwhile, like she tries to tell her story verbally. The doctors look at every, every page, maybe write two words on it onto their notebook. And then kind of, and maybe after an hour, they can make a decision. So um, and eventually the, 
one of our doctors like uh, diagnosed what was happening. She realized it was a rare disease called neurosarcoidosis and applied a treatment and my mom recovered like completely uh, to normal. So there's no, there's no sad story there, but Meanwhile, I was like observing how inefficient that process was to get more like opinion from different doctors. Mm-hmm. And I asked my like sister, like, what's that thing that they are writing on their notebook? And she said, they're making a timeline of the, of the case that they're trying to solve. Uh, and I said, like, why are they not already looking at timelines when they look at this medical data, right? If, this is, if what they put on your, their notebook is what really matters, like, why isn't that the presentation in the first, first place? And I started sketching what I thought that process should look like. I made a one-page visual design about how cases should look. I put up a title, like 65-year-old women with unexplained diagnosis, unexplained stroke. I put her medical history on the top. And then I created a timeline visualization of what happened day by day. Like first day she goes, she has some symptoms. They give some prescription. One week later, she comes back because the painkillers are not working. They do some labs. They do some x-ray. A couple months later, they're like CT scans coming in, PT PET scans, um, and then their doctor's opinions like throughout the process, right. the examination. I just designed like a one-page timeline, like really productized timeline of the problem, and it would be something that a doctor could look at in a couple of minutes and make a decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, if, if the system worked like that, then you could get opinions from like 10 doctors in less than a week and make a very quick, like start the treatment process super quickly. So I just put that design and but then my mom recovered and I got back to Udemy. So I just kind of forget about it for a long time. Yeah. So but then I was kind of I had more time because I did not I was not CEO of Udemy anymore. I was still in the company, so helping with the product, but I had more like time to think about other things that I like. And I I just I just that one page design came back to me. I said like I, I picked it back up and I Talked to some doctors. I said, like, what would you guys think if the healthcare system worked like this? And they said it would be a dream for them. And I built a small team and to kind of productize that. Mm. So, and the separate thread, second thread, which is the relevance with Udemy is that at one point somebody called Udemy the world's largest school mm-hmm. because we had 10, like 50, more than 50,000 people teaching on the same platform. So, no school has that. And similarly, people were calling Airbnb the world's largest hotel network. But Airbnb did not own any buildings. Right. And Uber came out as this world's largest cab company without like owning cars. So I started thinking, okay, what would it look like if you built world's largest hospital mm. right, without owning any buildings? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and my thesis was that it would not be just Kaiser with 2,000 more buildings. It would instead be a platform which centralizes medical records, uh, patient onboarding, payments, all history, like everything. So all the technology layer, all the user experience layer, all the patient interaction, but it will decentralize the actual physical clinics. So a practice and independently owned physician owned practice could join this network and this network, this platform would handle everything for them Mm. all the way from like EHR, billing, payments, scheduling, getting prescriptions of the patient and everything. And, but then, but the practice would give care in their own location. Yeah. Right. So, and then if you make a network of tens of thousands of practices in, um, around the U.S., this could become world's largest I think, yeah. I think so, it's a, an amazing idea. Speaking as a person who's been frustrated with the mm-hmm. medical system as is trying, I can't even access my own medical records without yeah. getting you know, badgered. Exactly. So, and then we started like, okay, this was a very ambitious idea. I, I mentioned this 
to a couple of people, they thought I was joking about creating world's largest hospital. And then I started like uh, with, I, with, with our team, we started designing the healthcare experience we want for ourselves. I think I started this like two years ago. So we knew that we want to work in healthcare, but the product was still kind of not clear. Around between Christmas and New Year's, I started making some sketches about the healthcare experience, experience I want for myself. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, it was obvious that I wanted everything mobile. Right. Like 100% of my healthcare interaction should be happening from my phone. Mm-hmm. So you, I schedule my appointments there. The intake is done automatically by the system so that I don't have to fill out any forms. And then I show up there, see the doctor. And then once like, the doctor makes the examination, they put the medical records in my medical record, but it's actually owned by me. So it's, everything is still on my phone. Mm-hmm. And then after the visit, they would send me a treatment plan. Mm-hmm. And the treatment plan would have all the instructions, my medications, like labs, any other thing that the doctor wants to do. And then meanwhile, if I have to go to the, the ask something to the doctor, I could maybe message with them. We could do telemedicine-based visits. So I, I made this, I think like a couple hundred page sketches <laughs> about the, ex, the healthcare experience I want for myself. And I showed it to my team. I said, what would you guys think if you just built this, right? And then there's really three different things. Like my personal background is my mom seeing the opportunity as the world's largest hospital. And lastly, like, what could be more fun to do than designing your own healthcare system? Yeah. Right? It's like, it was I so mean, fun to yeah. do, right? Like, so we, yeah. we really wanted to do it because And it was you fun. don't have to deal with, I mean, you're not trying to deal with Congress and trying to get, I mean, you're building yep. something, you're democratizing the the healthcare system which they tried to do and failed you know and, yeah. and made things worse uh but you know the the one thing like so the, probably the greatest challenge that you face as you're innovating yeah. is old rules like hipaa right yes. and privacy rules mm-hmm. that that interfere with your ability to disrupt yeah. that so how do you approach that so i mean hipaa is a good rule i don't we don't have any issues with hipaa but there are still certain things in healthcare where uh, like it's just annoying for innovators, um, but I'm not like we're not really affected by those that much. The way I look at it is, starting a company is very very hard. Mm-hmm. Like getting building a product that resonates with customers is hard. Like getting growth is hard. Like convincing people to join your company is hard. These are all very hard things to, to hard things to do, no matter what you are doing. And if you have, if you also have to like fill out 200 pages of documentation for something for some paperwork. I mean, it's hard and annoying, but it's not the end of the world. Right. Like you just, I mean, everybody else who wants to do the same thing will have to go through the same challenges. We just like do, I mean, we are not trying to work around, like we are not in the gray area. We just right. like, if there is a regulation, we just go by the regulation. Right. It's usually a bunch of paperwork, a bunch of lawyer work, and it's expensive. That's one issue. So mm-hmm. we have to raise a lot more money for carbon mm-hmm. than we did for Udemy. Mm-hmm. But then it's just at the, end of, at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of work you do. I'm not... Yeah, it, it, it doesn't bother me that much. The other, the bigger problems in healthcare are two things, really. One is the upfront amount of investment you need is very high, mm-hmm. right? So, um, which was okay for for me because I started Udemy and it was not hard for me to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other thing is like other companies move very slowly. Yeah, and because everybody moves so slowly, the top tech talent does not go to healthcare. Mm-hmm. If they go to healthcare, they build a kind of step tracker or some like widgety. Right, like non-serious products, and they do that, but that does not impact actual health that much. Mm-hmm. Like nobody really gets involved into like more dirty, like ugly, like clunky healthcare yeah. delivery side. So, so yeah, working with third-party companies have been slow, mm-hmm. 
But even though with those, we just find hacks and mm-hmm. we, we, we make it work mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. How much money have you guys raised to date? We raised six and a half million dollars okay. for like a seed round. Yeah. Which is hard, like higher than like a normal seed round. But compared to what we are doing, it's actually, I think, if, if anything, it's like lower, like less than what you should have raised. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I have a few more questions, mm-hmm. but I want to make sure that uh, people know how to how to connect with you and maybe ca- see what you're doing and, mm-hmm. and, and keep keep track of what you're up to. Sure. Online. So yeah, I mean the Carbon Health, my new company is the that's that's my new baby. So we we connect independent practices and we give them the full healthcare platform they need to operate. So mm-hmm. all the EHR, billing, scheduling, everything. Really, they could just. It's really the, by far the simplest way mm-hmm. doctors can give care. Mm-hmm. So, and if there are doctors who are interested in doing a more innovative care platform uh, and really differentiate, differentiating on both the patient's experience and also their own experience, because mm-hmm. we use a lot of artificial intelligence to make their workload less mm-hmm. daunting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would love to get like other doctors on board, but then also other people in healthcare who wants to maybe collaborate on innovating mm-hmm. here like mm-hmm. should reach out to me mm-hmm. my email is like aaron my name at carbonhealth.com okay um so i'm pretty selective with responding so i really care about when if you have any healthcare innovation i'm much more like interested mm-hmm. in it because mm-hmm. carbon health is new so i don't have that much time for like and it's a very hard business to make right so i had to really focus on things that matter in this new realm absolutely so I have uh, three final questions, and then yeah. we'll we'll uh, let you get back to changing the world. Mm-hmm. And the first question is: If you could take any skill set mm-hmm. that you currently possess mm-hmm. and turn it into a superpower, mm-hmm. what would it be? Superpower. If you could take any skill that you already have yeah. but make it a superpower, what would it be? I think one skill I, I think I have that I really like has just like this in- instinct, intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know like why those that that decision is that way, but like my brain, like says okay, this is the right direction to go, and it's not right. like a religious thing. Even in mathematics, I had the same thing, right? So mm-hmm. I would see the problem. I was not trained that much, so I did not know how to approach the problems. But I would have like the hunch about mm-hmm. the direction to go. Mm-hmm. That hunch, I think, is is probably some really complex calculation that our brain is making, but we don't know how it's made, but we mm-hmm. know that we know the outcome, mm-hmm. right? So. Mm-hmm. I would make that like a more superpower, like kind of feeling yeah. what's going to happen. Maybe like seeing a little, bit, a little bit into the future. Yeah, I love that. That would be more like a superpower version of the hunch. Yeah, totally, totally. I love that. This, the next question is: What are three lies mm-hmm. that we that people tell themselves that we yep. tell ourselves that prevent them prevent us from realizing our full potential? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very good question. So, I think we do two things in the two mistakes in the same time we overestimate certain people's skill set capabilities mm-hmm. right we we, sign, we see somebody like an entrepreneur we admire and we think that's, that that person is a smart person has all those things that we would never be able to replicate and then we underestimate the the uh, vision of a lot of people that we don't respect them mm. right so i think that these are both huge mistakes like I think people look at like like Steve Jobs and like like Elon Musk and they think they're gods and like not they're from a different planet and everything they do like become make it feel smarter to like 
to them. So they want to just replicate and mimic them. Mm-hmm. And it just makes him hit on a wall really bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is like, these guys are like normal people too, right? So it's right. just, they, what they do is like awesome, inspiring, but mm-hmm. not replicable. And they're wrong about a lot of things too, right? Mm-hmm. So you just, I think that overestimating their skill actually doesn't let you see the world for what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also then we also do the other mistake where like you, maybe you're a young engineer, right? You just assume that everybody who's not an engineer, who's not, who's not gone to the same colleges that you went to is not smart and there's nothing to learn from them. Right. But the reality is you talk to a nurse which has been working in an ER for 25 years. There's so much you can learn from them. Oh my gosh, yeah. So um, I think that humility to understand that like you are, like people who are ahead of you are not necessarily right about everything. Mm-hmm. People who are, don't have the same career mm-hmm. that you have don't have anything to contribute to mm-hmm. you. Like these are two like very, I think like, it's not lies. It's just really massive mistakes people. Right. Do. Yeah. Yeah. I think most of my inspiration comes from people who are not in, who are not ahead of me. Right. Um, yeah. I don't have a third one. Honestly. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, those are good. I, those, yeah. Nobody's answered that question that way. Cause I ask it, I ask these questions of every guest. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the last question is, is from the title of a book. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how will you measure your life? Mm-hmm. I will think that I was successful if I, I inspire other people and I see that I inspire other people who also become even more successful than I, mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. And so, um, like I'm, when my kids grow up, I want them to be inspired like from what they, their parents did. Mm-hmm. And like because of that, they think they also want to do amazing yeah. things. And they don't have to do what I'm doing. They don't have to be an entrepreneur. They could be like social workers, nonprofit people. They could be scientists, like musicians, artists. Mm-hmm. But but I would love to be inspired from their like from their dad and and wanna if if I see that they want to do great things, I will know that maybe I I had a life worth living. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great yeah. answer. I love it, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show for sharing your story and and uh, just providing a lot of advice and counsel. I think to a lot of yeah. people that. That, list, that will listen to this episode. So thank you again for your time. Thanks a lot. This is one of the most fun conversations I, I have had in an interview like this. Okay, awesome. Great feedback. High five. Thanks. <laughs> thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.